Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Competitive Enablement Show. I'm your host, Adam McQueen, and today's episode is another installment from our monthly Versus series. In today's installment, we look at the go-to-market strategies that Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat use in order to compete with meat. We actually wrote a story about this exact topic about a year ago, but I don't think we did it justice. So we've revisited it. Um, we got it out the freezer. We've reheated the meal. And I think it's going to be tasty. Not like a lean cuisine. It's going to be more like, shoot, I don't have a good frozen meal analogy. But it's good. Trust me. There's a, there's a lot of tactical takeaways from what both companies have done. It was a lot of fun. And Ben and I get into a terrible word association game. Also, if you want to check out the written piece of this story, which is a little bit more in depth, sign up for the Coffee and Compete newsletter, which hits your inbox every Sunday. Uh, and yeah, the story will be coming out this weekend. So check that one out too. With that all said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Beyond Burgers have been on grocery store shelves since 2016, and now you'll be able to buy Impossible Burgers at the grocery store as well. It's a new operation run by a company called Impossible Foods that's churning out something that looks, feels, tastes, and smells like ground beef. So we just reported Beyond Meat. Uh, its stock, as you mentioned, up around 6% on news that KFC is going to be rolling out Beyond Meat fried chicken breast nationwide. Really, the biggest benefit here is it's not health. It's an environmental impact. Eating these uh, more easily sustainable foods takes away the greenhouse gas emissions from these large beef farms. It tastes almost exactly the same. All right. I am joined today by Adam McQueen the host of this podcast and today you are the guest in the versus series so adam welcome to your own show it's nice to see you it's a pleasure to be here always weird being on the other side but i'm excited to dive into another episode of versus these are my favorite things to do i love going down these rabbit holes of research listening to a bunch of podcasts a bunch of interviews and sharing the story with everyone so stoked yeah, no, it's and it's it's a real privilege for me to be able to sit in the host chair. So thanks for uh, making some room for me today. Um, as you mentioned, it's versus today. We are doing a versus episode. The last one we did HBO versus Netflix. Today, we're looking at two brands, and we try to do that always with versus. Right, we go competitor A, competitor B, go against each other. Makes for a nice, neat, and tidy storytelling. From experience, though, I can tell you that when I was writing an earlier piece thinking about Tesla versus Volkswagen, I learned pretty quickly that it wasn't just Tesla versus one other car brand. Tesla was competing against the entire car industry and trying to upend it. And this topic that we're going to talk about today is actually quite similar because about a year ago, you sat down, put pen to paper and wrote sort of the genesis, what ended up being the genesis of the Versus series, where you looked at Beyond Meat versus Impossible Burger. But now you're a year older, you're wiser. You took a look back at that piece and sort of came up with a different kind of thesis around it. So tell me a little bit about how your thinking has evolved. It actually evolved based on some of the conversations we'd had on Versus. And it allowed me to realize when I went, when I look back at what I'd wrote, um, it was definitely like a comparison beyond meat versus impossible foods. 
which is all well and good, but in actuality, when you look at the landscape, they're frenemies at worst. They're really not direct competitors. Unpacking that, it means that when you look at their purpose, their re- the nexus of the business, the reason for being, the why, and their go-to-market strategy, they're not competing with one another. They never call each other out. They're never looking to be the dominant plant-based meat provider. They're looking to overhaul the meat industry. And so the biggest competitor for both of them is meat. And do you think that's always been the case? Has that been their raison d'etre from the start? And and sort of as consumers, we've perceived it as one versus the other? Uh, I think it was honestly just something that it felt neat and tidy for myself, to be honest. The why of each company, I'll, I'll probably reference the why a couple of times because it really sets the stage for both both founders, Ethan Brown and Pat Brown, come from a uh, climate activist background. One in the science field and one's been an entrepreneur in that space for a while. And both founded their companies because of the ecological environmental impact that the meat industry has, the agricultural practices. And so that's really why they created their business and they saw producing plant-based meats as the solution to that problem. So when, with that context in mind of how both companies were founded, you immediately realize, oh, okay, they're sure they're indirectly competing with one another, but there's bigger fish to fry in this and they're looking to overhaul this industry that's seemingly impenetrable, right? Do you think it's a wise business decision to start a business and say, we're going to take on an entire industry and disrupt it as opposed to here's a competitor on the block and there can only be one winner? It's, <laughs> it's, it's wise if you have the product that can compete and a strong go-to-market strategy. And that's what each of them have, which is why I'm super excited to kind of get into today. If you don't have those two things, then you're, then you're completely screwed. If you have a product that no one knows, cares about, or wants to t- try, but it's awesome, well, good luck. And conversely, if you have all sizzle and no steak, excuse the meat pun there, your product, yeah, that, that's going to fizzle out very quickly and you're not going to have any legs. So they, they've nailed those two core components and by no means have they completely overhauled the meat industry yet. But I tell you what, they've gotten a foothold and I don't think they're fading anytime soon. What, what have they done from a go-to-market point of view that has resonated? I think, first of all, is understanding again why they didn't just want to compete against veggies and as i mentioned before sort of the the reason that they were both founded it's around eliminating meat i mean pat brown on the big brain podcast literally state our mission is to completely replace the use of animals as a food technology by 2035 and now that's a podcast that you and i can go listen to so immediately that's part of their strategy too, which we can get into in a bit. Is like they're not bashful about what their mission is and what their goal is. So really, that is kind of central to why they went after me. And secondarily, it's like only three percent of the world, or sorry, three percent of the United States are purely vegetarians or vegans. So from a business standpoint, it makes no sense to fight over dollars and cents, slap fighting to be winners or the dominant company in this meat alternative space. It, it, it didn't make sense. And so the first thing that either company did beyond me, which is, let's call them the first mover, is plop themselves 
in that grocery store, in the aisle, right next to ground beef. That is the first thing they did, and that was a monumental move. So they they said, we're not, we're not your grandpa's tofurkey. We're not run-of-the-mill black bean burger that you may be casually familiar with. We are something different. Well, this is the funny thing is that you differentiate against meat by not differentiating at all, by saying we're the same. And like you said, you're not cubbied away on aisle 28, going past, I don't know, you walk past the rat traps on your left, you've got party hats and all this miscellaneous crap on your right. You get up to the top row and you get, yeah, your sliced tofurkey. You're not there. You're sitting side by side with ground beef and you're, what you're publicly stating is your direct competition. So that's, it's a brand play, right? It's brand, it's normalizing where you, where you sit in the consumer's eyes. Foot traffic. The meat aisle is the most popular space on a grocery store. So just by virtue of getting into grocery stores, you're already making moves. You're already making a big move. Um, and so they did that in 2013 with Whole Foods, which makes logical sense. And then when they officially got their burgers right next to the ground beef patties was in 2019. So that's sort of like, okay, it's setting, laying down the marker, like we're no different to me. And we don't want to be viewed differently in that, in that light. You can see it a, a lot as well in how Ethan Brown speaks about their product. What he talks about is simply that like the core components of meat is no different to what they're going to do from a plant-based perspective. It's just an animal stores those chemical compounds. And the basic notion uh, that became very clear to me is that the things that are in meat, uh, amino acids, lipids, trace minerals, vitamins, and water are abundant in the universe. They are, they are not exclusive to the animal. What the animal is doing is organizing those core constituent parts of meat in a particular structure. And so he uses that justification to be like, look, from a like, chemical structural perspective, we are literally the same thing. But what we're doing, as we get into later, is we're doing it from a sustainable lens. Um, so that's the first foray into going after um, meat. And to circle back, are you saying that you've been in a grocery store that has rat traps and party hats in the same aisle? <laughs> you know those aisles that you're like, what am I doing here? It's more like, it's usually more at you when you're at a dollar store and there's just like all of this miscellaneous junk that nobody needs in their lives. I think they just shove it all into this one grocery aisle that will never, ever see the light of day. Unless, of course, you want to feed your rats or invading your apartment tofurkey. And then, then it's the aisle for you. You're obviously touching on kind of like the art of, of merchandising, right? And being intentional about that. And it sounds like from the hop, these two companies understood the value in being situated next to what they want to be situated next to yeah get a seat at the table right if you want to be compared against meat then you have to be you have to be there you have to be present you have to be in the fight um so beyond meat did that from a retail perspective but what i really like is what Imp impossible foods did uh when their go-to-market strategy in 2015 and a lot of the information i got from this one was on a podcast from their former vp of sales dana worth their go-to-market mission it all revolved around doing a B2B sale before a B2C sale. So what I mean by that is that 
they sold to restaurants before going straight into the grocery store. And that turned out to be an incredibly strategic and smart move because essentially what they were doing is accruing revenue through a B2B sale by selling to restaurants, but they're building consumer demand in the process. It was a really effective marketing strategy for three core reasons, which, hey, this is why we're here, so I'll get into it right now. The first one is that Beyond Meat really get a foothold by going into retail stores, sitting directly across from meat. But what I really liked is what Impossible Foods did in 2015. Their go-to-market strategy was to place their product in restaurants rather than going straight to grocery stores. And a lot of their go-to-market strategy I was listening to, and folks should listen to the podcast where their VP of, their former VP of sales, Dana Worth, I think it's the Grit podcast, explains like their full go-to-market strategy. And the reason they went straight restaurants first is essentially it's a B2B sale. So they're growing revenue through selling to restaurants, but they're also creating direct-to-consumer demand ahead of time. And the reason that you would do it in a restaurant, I think there's three main reasons that it was incredibly successful. The first is that they could build their brand through name recognition and getting in front of as many eyeballs as possible. For example, Ben, when I say ketchup, you think? Mustard. Oh, you wanted me to say Heinz. <laughs> Heinz. When I say a light lager, you think? Oh, Budweiser? Sure. Is Budweiser you think of lager? brand names. <laughs> You, yeah, that brand. one might be a tougher one to answer, but you think of brand names and, but if I said Ben, when I say Ben, when I say steak, what do you think of? Medium rare. You, a, a brand doesn't come to mind. And no, no. so what impossible did was they named their thing, the impossible burger. And that was slapped on the menu right there for everyone to see. And I think that that's such a, it's a simple play, but an incredibly important and necessary play when you're something completely new in this space. So when, when you're sitting down looking at your menu and you're looking at your burgers and then something stands out like the Impossible Burger, that brand name right there has already captured your attention. And it's, it's, that was, that marketing law of seven, right? It's a constant repetition of having your brand name out there. And then it's going to start to sit in the minds of your potential consumer. Yeah. Think about how in the grocery store, there are tens of thousands of products that you could be looking at. And there's nothing directing your attention like a menu in a restaurant is. So mm -hmm. they've got your attention locked. And even if there are 30 things, that's still way fewer than in a grocery store. So I can see the power of being on that menu, you're almost guaranteed eyeballs on it. I mean, that's what well, I mean. Look, you set me up for my second point here is that it was like, a, it's a lot lower barrier to entry. I think from what you said, the consideration set when you're a grocery store, there's a thousand and one different things that you could pick from menu, say you've got 40. But beyond that as well is when someone goes to a restaurant, they're sitting down, they're enjoying the experience. There's a whole process involved with being at a restaurant. Whereas when you're grocery shopping, like I can do a 30 minute grocery shop, headphones in, listening to my favorite podcast, a CE show. 
I'm on autopilot. I don't even think twice. There's so many subconscious decisions I make when I'm picking stuff up. From that standpoint, being in a restaurant, the cons- potential consumer is way more susceptible or open to trying your product, which then leads me to the third reason that this go-to-market strategy is so dang good is that when you're at a restaurant, you have a built-in salesperson ready for you. You have waiters. So again, I'm at the grocery store. When I'm selecting between two different eggs, cartons of eggs, I'm I'm sitting there for five to 10 seconds max deciding on that. But if I go to the restaurant, I'm going to say to the waiter, what do you recommend? The heck is this impossible food thing? What, what, what is that? Why did you sit me by the bathroom again? Like these are the questions I asked the waiter. And now that opens a discussion. It allows, first of all, waiters to educate you on that. Okay. Oh, the impossible burger. Well, let me tell you, because as someone that worked in the service industry, when you have a new product on the menu, a new item on the menu, they'll walk you through it. You'll taste it. They'll tell you about the product itself, how you sell it. And so when you put a new product into a restaurant, it's just a huge value add. There are salesperson sitting there and they're helping build brand affinity immediately. So those are the three biggest reasons that sitting in restaurants specifically was such a strategic play for Impossible Foods in particular. You said uh, an interesting word there. You said the waiter could educate the consumer. And why that rang a bell with me was that, as we talked about a little bit earlier in preparation for this, education is actually, from what I recall, the, the, the powers that be at Impossible and at Beyond have found some limitations when it comes to educating consumers. Could you talk a little bit more about, about that, that nuance, about how educating actually has some, has a limitation to it? This is, this is a fun one. And, oh, I got so excited diving into this because what, what I mentioned there before about the restaurants and being in a grocery store, that's namely a brand play exposure. Um, and then we kind of touch on the educational piece but the reason that education is not i mean i can answer this with a with a simple example that the impossible foods founder shared pat brown was at the paris climate agreement and he's sitting there with some of the most influential and educated um, folks in the world that are fully aware of the climate implications of the meat industry right now and how we currently produce meat even people who fully understand the destructive impact of that industry. And I mean, when I went to the Paris Climate Conference five years ago, everybody acknowledged that this was a huge problem and they all went out and had steak for them. So, <laughs> right. so my feeling is, okay, well, th- what that tells you is you're not gonna solve the problem by educating people or by telling them what I just told you. And right then, when there's people that fully agree with what he's just talked about from an environmental impact standpoint, and then there, there's that cognitive dissonance where they immediately go and order a steak. That sets an alarm bell from him. It's like, well, if we just lead with educational and environmental messaging, we're never even getting our foot in the door. Like, that's there's good luck. And so you really have to compete on the grounds of, first of all, we need to win over their taste buds. And this actually comes from a report from the Good Food Institute 
they did a really interesting piece about researching the barriers to entry for people uh, around consuming plant-based food. And really the motivating factors for why they would even try this, number one was taste. Number two is price. And number three is convenience. So when you, again, we think about like consideration set, like why would I try this plant-based food? These are the three things that immediately drive a decision for you. Then secondary to that, not in the immediate when you're sitting in front of a menu making a decision. Secondary to that is the environmental piece where you tell more of a story. Um, and so with that said, that's kind of how both Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods tier their external messaging, which I'm very excited to get into here, Ben. Yeah, yeah. No, give me a, give me a little bit of the rundown on it because there's something so, so illuminating about the fact that if you're among like what can only be described as some of the most educated experts on a particular topic, if even if it's not getting through to them, it can't possibly be a matter of making a better argument because because otherwise, logically, they would have said, oh, yeah, of course, if, if we believe the stats and, and we understand that and we understand the implications, like I'm never going to eat a steak again. And so clearly that wasn't the case. So, yeah, so I, I love hearing about how, how they kind of went beyond that, pardon the pun, and, and sort of solved the impossible. Well, I mean, Not it's, sorry yeah. about that last pun. <laughs> Stop this. We need to cut the recording now. Uh, yeah, exactly. You, you stumped me with that pun right there. A double pun. The buying behavior and the human decisions aren't logical in this, in this regard. And it's, is proven out right there with that example. So with that said, the approach that both Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat have taken in order to actually win over the hearts, the minds, and the taste buds of meat eaters, I look at it almost like your kind of traditional, we're, we're in marketing, the old traditional funnel. You're kind of top of funnel, mid funnel, bottom of funnel, convert. Although with this, it's more your top of funnel is someone that might have tried, tried you once. And then the bottom of funnel is having, creating a loyal customer to your brand that will come back and consume your food. And so when you look at it from that structure, their messaging at this top of funnel to these people that are kind of interested, they probably haven't even, they've never even consumed plant-based. They don't even really know what plant-based is. The messaging that they do from that side is nothing to do with environmental impact, nothing to do with the health benefits of being vegan or vegetarian. It's purely about taste and the fact that, again, you differentiate by not being different at all in that regard. So when you look at like the Impossible Whopper commercials, it's all of those social proof quotes where, where people are blind taste testing like, I can't believe this isn't beef. This is better than the original Whopper. I've never had plant taste like beef before. Tastes like a Whopper. Tastes like a Whopper. Tastes like a beef burger. Blah, 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 blah. Like, there's, that's the messaging. That's the base layer messaging. And then same for Beyond Meat did a burger with Carl's Jr. Where it's actually a good, uh, it's a good ad. You need to put that one into the audio here. Yeah, I've seen a lot out here in the West. But a juicy charbroiled burger with a patty made from plants? Only the folks at Carl's Jr. can pull out something that bold. 
where they kind of like they lean into like the stereotype of the carnivore meat eater caveman and the granola hippie vegans and so there's this funny clash of these two outdated stereotypes but at the crux of the message is just like but our burger it's just a burger and it tastes just as good as any other burger you'll have at carl's jr and so these ads are going to what we call like a cold audience right it's total awareness total brand play and you need to delineate that down to a really simple core message and the simple core message is hey this tastes just as good as a regular burger and again this is based on what I've when I've been consuming a lot of their content, a lot of their advertising, a lot of research. So like I've put this theory together. So hey, if anyone from Impossible or Beyond are like, no, he's completely off base. Let me know. But it feels like that secondary or the mid funnel tier is where they win over the mind. That's where you can introduce the I the why of their organization, right? This is where you start to educate the buyers on the environmental impact of the meat industry. It kind of speaks to, there's this like cliche as well. And I'm sorry, I think I'm saying too many cliches today, but it's like people don't care about your product or what you stand for or your why of your company. They care about their problems. And in this case, they care about the fact that they're hungry. So if you can satisfy or meet those initial expectations and needs, uh, in this case, their taste buds, now you've earn a modicum of trust but what trust allows you to do is it gives you a little bit more time and opportunity with your consumer what time does is it allows you to tell a bit of a deeper story and what a deeper story does is it allows you to build real brand affinity so when i look at a mid-funnel marketing strategies it's this would be targeted to folks that okay i got that ad captured my interest or there was some hype around the new kfc beyond meat chicken I tried it. It was pretty good. I'm kind of like curious about plant-based now. Maybe I'll go onto the site. Maybe I'll look up, look them up on YouTube. Maybe I'll check out some podcasts. And so these people have a different level of intent where there's some level of awareness of the, both the brands and sort of what is plant-based meat. That's, that's kind of what I think of this funnel. So when you listen to, for example, Ethan Brown or Pat Brown on podcasts, you're going to hear lines like, if I can snap my fingers and make the meat industry disappear, the recovery of biomass will nullify 22 years of fossil fuel emissions. You're going to hear stuff like, we use 93% less land to grow our burgers than if you're using livestock. We use 99% less water and 90% fewer emissions. You're even going to hear things like, if we see smoke rising from the Amazon... That's the smoke that's coming from your burger. Like Industrial meat is also the single biggest cause of deforestation globally. So if you see smoke rising from the Amazon, that's the secondhand smoke from your burger. So they lean into the why of their business and you're going to sit there. You're going to consume that message. You're more inclined to because you've shown a higher level of interest. Uh, like other content as well that you start to be... Uh, met by, say, for example, Impossible Foods conducted a 2020 impact report. And on the opening page of that impact report is a letter from Pat Brown. And to quote him, it says, to the outside world, Impossible Foods is a food company. But at its heart, it's an audacious yet realistic strategy to turn back the clock on climate change and stop the global collapse of biodiversity. Now, that's how you share your company's narrative. That's how you share your business's narrative. And that's how you start to share 
the why behind what your company stands for and you start to build a little bit more brand affinity. And then the third component. This, okay, let's look at it like bottom of funnel. This is where I consider the kind of winning the heart. Now you've, you've won the taste buds, you're winning over the mind with like this logical argument. And this is sort of where you win over, you really build that devout um, relationship between the product and the, and the buyer. And it's really kind of around, we want you to be a part of this bigger movement. So where I've seen that kind of more in plays, if you look at say beyond meats, they have a mission statement in on their site. And that really articulates, it's very community led that their purpose is this, and we want you to be a part of it. I look at beyond meets partnerships, for example, they, their go beyond partnership is particularly a lot with athletes too. It's not about just like consuming a veggie burger, a plant-based burger. It's really like a change in your lifestyle, being a part of something more, being part of this honestly is, is community building, which it's hot in marketing and it makes sense because people want to be a part of a community. They want to be attached to something greater than themselves. And that's kind of where I see a lot of the, let's call it, yeah, the bottom of funnel winning over the hearts of consumers, because realistically you need to do that when you're a new product and in a new space, because there's going to be this spike of interest if you really captivate them early, but there's also going to be a lot of churn. There's going to be a lot of people that are one and doneers. Um, so you really need to build that in to create consumers that will stand the test of time and actually allow you to get a foothold in again, the meat industry, like who's cracking this thing? Well, apparently they have. And I think this is a key reason why. Do you even have a marketing podcast? If you don't mention the funnel, I mean, come on, really <laughs> feels like you can see this, this difference in their messaging at each stage. And it's, I think it's incredibly effective. And I think that's why they, they have made a dent the way they have. And the, the industry in which they've made a dent, the meat industry, I imagine they're not taking this lying down. <laughs> can you tell me a little bit about what they've done in response? I see the meat industry, the legacy meat industry in a sort of similar light to how we looked at the legacy car makers in the kind of Tesla versus the rest of the car industry debate. Now, I think the meat industry right now are still very much opposed to plant-based foods becoming the future. Um, and you can see that in a lot of their counter messaging. Um, one of the things that's been very interesting in this counter messaging is these some of the lobby groups and things like that is they're really trying to position plant-based meat alternatives and things like that as this sort of you don't know what the heck is going inside there there's all these chemicals there's all these ingredients you don't even know about what are they whereas you can trust your alberta beef that's grown at your local farm and so they've really leaned into actually sort of the uncertainty around this new product but while they're doing that they're also investing considerable amounts of dollars and cents into producing their own plant-based food so there's definitely when you see big players doing that your kellogg's and and whatnot then you know that you've made an impact in a way that you're shaking up how the landscape's going to look in the future so there's this interesting uh counter messaging coming into play its effectiveness well 
Beyond Meat struggling right now? You look at Beyond Meat here, they've had a couple challenging quarters as they expand their own operations uh, in the US, overseas, they're building new headquarters. They've definitely taken a dip, their revenue, tens of millions of dollars lost in revenue. Now that could be accounted to some of the supply chain issues right now, kind of some of the, the more macro trends that are playing the market right now. Uh, but Beyond Meat's kicked off their IPO, they were skyrocketing and now they're, they're in a tough spot. So I can't attribute that all to the counter messaging of these uh, meat industries, but it's definitely something that they need to account for now and counter message to counter message. Well, Adam, I really appreciated you diving into this. It was an interesting way to look at, to go back and look at something you did a year ago, look at a bit about how your, your thoughts have evolved on the issue. Um, it was a lot of fun to read through your piece, and I know everyone else will really enjoy it too. But I, I do want to leave you with one last question. What do you think it would take for you to adopt more plant-based meats into your diet? For me, huh, I would say for me, it is a matter of price for one and frankly, convenience. I'm still at that price and convenience. And look, this is someone that's done all of this research right now that's bought in on this, that I enjoy consuming the plant-based meats for sure. Those products, they're really good. But at the end of the day, for me, I'm, I'm busy. I need someone, like, I don't know how to produce this. How do I make a plant-based meal that's tasty? Beyond and Impossible have done a lot with their different, like, cookbooks and things like that. But that's definitely the things that will drive me to become a full-time adopter of plant-based meat because I have kind of vegans and vegetarians in my family. Whenever I go over there, I eat vegan and vegetarian. Love it. But when I come home, old habits is really hard to, to quash. And it's really easy when you're when you're tired and you think I'll just chuck it, I'll just bake a chicken breast, have some rice and some veggies. That's a, that's an easy out. So it's really breaking the habit, man. Where can the listeners read uh, your your article? Yeah, you sign up for that coffee and compete newsletter. Be in the show notes every Sunday in your inbox. And yeah, the versus story will also be coming out Sunday Sunday morning, bright and early. Enjoy it with a coffee in hand and let me know what you think. This is definitely uh, a different versus. There is some competition. They're competing against meat, but it's more just an appreciation of the go-to-market strategies of these two disruptors. Adam, thank you, man. Pleasure's mine.